So I'm a reader. I, I know. No great shock there. But I'm being quite specific when I say that because not only do I love books, but I love to read them, to read them kind of old school way, you know, my eyes and the books pages there in front of me. But it occurred to me <laughs> that really, really old school ways of reading books, and I guess new school too with the rise of audiobooks, is to be a listener of books. I mean, for a while, that's how they were enjoyed. You know, the family would sit in the living room and the candles and the lamps would be lit and somebody would be given the book and the book would be read out loud and people would sit around and they would listen to the book. That was the evening's entertainment. That's what binging on Netflix was back 200 years ago. And the truth is some books just shine when they're read out loud. I, mean, I was thinking about recently James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm actually listening to that on audiobook at the moment, the 1982 Irish recording of that. It's actually probably better than reading it. I've tried to read Ulysses. It's a difficult read. It's poetic when you're listening to it. And Dickens, there's another author. Those names, that language, that <laughs> eloquence that he has. By the way, before I introduce you to the podcast, I am actually reading the audio version of my new book, How to Begin. More details, of course, at howtobegin.com. So on that note, welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. David Gardner is the co-founder of The Motley Fool. I've known about The Motley Fool for years. I came across it when I moved to Boston in 1997. It was this cheeky upstart with a weird name, but a catchy name, a curious name, because as a person who loves literature, I love the idea of, of The Fool. And I knew right away what it was about. It was trying to simplify and cut through the mystery of investing in the stock market. But, you know, even then, when I read their newsletters that came out, I understood that this organization wasn't just about making money. We are purpose-driven implies something more about us, which is that we're not just capitalists, we're conscious capitalists. That's something that means a lot to me and to Tom. I'm on the National Board of Conscious Capitalism. Conscious capitalism seeks to elevate humanity through business. And I think there's an increasing understanding that this is just a great business move. I mean, it's a good human move, but it's also a great business move, putting complexity and humanity at the center of how businesses are understood, designed, and run. But David and his brother, who founded The Motley Fool on these principles, they did that nearly 30 years ago. That's so long ago that AOL was still a thing. From the very first day, we put to educate, to amuse, and to enrich right up on the front page of our AOL site. And I always loved my study of English literature, suggested that a lot of the purpose of literature was to educate and to amuse, to instruct and to delight. But I always thought, you know, there's a third one that The Motley Fool should do there, and that would be the enrich part. So wouldn't it be even better if rather than just educate and amuse, we also enriched? For many, enriching themselves through investing in the volatile, confusing, mystifying market, well, that can seem nothing more than a pipe dream. But David doesn't believe really anything <laughs> about that last statement I just made. A lot of academia has somehow convinced the rest of us during what I think of as a benighted age that to pick shares, to pick individual companies 
and actually expect to beat the market. That would just be luck. Monkeys throwing darts at dartboards. And I've always strenuously disagreed and tried to prove with every minute of my career and Tom and our company as well that that is not true, that you can actually take the time to research, look at the world around you and say, I think that's a great company. I'll be a part owner of that. I'll ignore that one and really thrive and succeed. So that's a little bit about me. So David's work at Motley Fool is clearly purpose-led, but it's not just purpose-led. It's also founded on optimism. The beauty of optimism is it isn't a state of mind or an emotion. It might be a state of mind, but what it really represents is it's a creative force. Purpose, optimism, but there's more. There's provocation. And this I understand, the desire to zag when others zig. I'm curious because I'm curious about myself around this. I asked David where that drive comes from. And you know what? The answer made me laugh. I really do believe it was always there. And I'm going to maybe credit my mother, Mm. an American woman, but sort of of Irish descent. And she had a real wit and an appreciation for wit. I'll be sharing very shortly (laughs) one of my favorite witty authors and a passage from his book. But, you know, I think this is apocryphal, but at one point I thought I remembered my mother telling me that Mark Twain, as an innocent abroad, this is again not going to be true. So everybody <laughs> listening, this was not actually the case. But yeah, there's an asterisk, I heard yeah. it this yeah. way and it worked its way in my mind. She said, you know, he visited the place of the Vestal Virgins where they had kept a candle lit for 2000 years. And he walked yeah. up and said, and women would stay up all night, every night to do this. And he walked up and he just went, oh, really? and just blew it out. Now, when I read The Innocents Abroad, I never saw this or anything about it, but my mother kind of loved that spirit of, this is a little silly, like, wow, a candle. Was it worth this much human misery to keep this? And so by blowing it out, he liberates all of us to reach our higher self in some senses. But So it's that appreciation of the real provocateur. My brother is an incredible provocateur, Mm. far more than I am, I think, in conversation and in life. So I do think it's clearly part of our family spirit. I will say that that we're descended from the Murphys in Ireland, and one of the old stories of the Murphys was that the English were coming to collect the best horse from each Irish family, imposing their power and will. And I guess our great-great-great-grandfather, James Murphy, with the English there ready to collect the horse, he just shot his horse right in front of them. So it's that kind of spirit that I think runs through us. (laughs) All right. And the lesson there is never be the best horse if you're talking to David Garner because you don't know what's (laughs) going to happen. David, tell us about the book you've chosen. And I love this pick. Well, thank you, Pick, indeed. So it's the posthumous papers of the Pickwick Club, and it's, of course, shortened to the Pickwick Papers. It was Charles Dickens's first novel. He wrote it at the age of 25, and it really brought out the comic side of Dickens. As a younger man and a less experienced man, he was much more satirical. Now, I am the first to disclaim great knowledge of Dickens, so I want to make Mm. it clear that I know a little bit about a lot of things, but not a lot about many things at all. And I know I'm talking to somebody who got his master's (laughs) in English literature from Oxford. I'm using the Oxford Illustrated Dickens, by the way, to read from. But my wife also got her master's in English literature, so I am the undergraduate here in this (laughs) crew. But as I recall, Dickens, this started as, like a lot of novels, a serialized novel, Mm -hmm. I did a little bit of research on this. Initially, Dickens was working with an illustrator. He was tagged to an illustrator by a publishing firm who Uh said, we want you 
to tell stories around the illustrations of Robert Seymour. And Seymour and Dickens kind of had a falling out early on in that as it became clear that Dickens with his stories had more talent than Seymour with his illustrations. And so Dickens, at the young age of 25, becomes a sensation. Mm. My friend Wikipedia reminds us of a few things about this book, The Pickwick Papers, Dickens' first novel. It really was the first sensation in English novels. There had been novels written before, but this became something that the whole country embraced. It inspired theatrical performances, the sale of merchandise. My wife this morning, as I talked about this podcast with her, she said, you know, maybe it was sort of like Star Wars because Star Wars came along and all of a sudden it launched merchandise around it. And so Pickwick Papers really popularized the notion of serialized novels and cliffhanger endings. And so Dickens himself, a great rule breaker, a phrase that means a lot to me, as you know, because rule breaking is how I think about things. And my podcast is Rule Breaker Investing. Dickens was a tremendous rule breaker, and I love his humor. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, I was thinking about my knowledge of Dickens because I'm also going. (laughs) So, you know, as you go, I'm an undergraduate. My wife has a master's. Well, in my, our house, I have a master's. My wife has a PhD in literature. So there's a similar kind of alpha dog here, neither of whom is you or me, David. I've read a number of Dickens books, but I don't think I've ever read the Pickwick Papers. And I also was looking at Wikipedia probably about the same time you were. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is one of Dickens' great innovations is the cliffhanger so that you'd read your installment and then you'd have to wait, and you were waiting. <laughs> I mean, you were like, there's no binge reading or binge watching, okay, Netflix or like a fully presented novel. You have to yes. wait for the next installment. Yes, it was written in 19 groups of kind of two chapters each over 20 months. And again, Incredible. this was a new thing at the yeah. time. He had been hired to simply tell a story around yeah. illustrations that were supposed to be the star Love of the that. show. Yeah, he's kind of invented a new business model whilst also inventing Mm -hmm. a new novel and a new style of novel as well. So how did you choose what to read for us, David? Well, I remember a scene, and just to set the stage for the book overall, for those and many people, most people haven't read it. We've all seen Oliver, the movie, probably at some point, Mm -hmm. and a lot of us were forced to read Great Expectations somewhere in high school. At least I was, I think, twice at two different schools. But anyway, a lot of people don't have facility with the Pickwick papers. So The Pickwick Club was Samuel Pickwick, who's the star of the novel, and he starts a club, and it's sort of within London, and you can imagine, you know, men with cigars sitting around. Waistcoats. Waistcoats, and the idea... Waistcoats and misogyny, yep, it's all there. (laughs) (laughs) There certainly is some of that, too. The idea is that they would go out on adventures, Mm. out to the country, away from London, a picaresque kind of a novel a very serialized, right? So it's kind of disconnected one story from the next, but it's a series of adventures. And then the idea is they would have these adventures, then they would come back with the, let's say, the fireside chat at the Pickwick Club and talk and tell the stories of what they'd seen and that that was all captured. This is, of course, the fictional story in the posthumous papers of the Pickwick Club. And so that is the scene for the Pickwick papers. I love that. And... You used the word picaresque. Weirdly enough, I actually know what that word means because it's part of what I wrote my master's degree on. Oh my so golly. Picaresque is when your hero goes off and has a series of adventures, just as you're explaining. The very first novel, Don Quixote by uh, Cervantes, being not only just the first real novel, but also a perfect example of a picaresque story as well. Mm, yes, and thank you for that. Quite sure the word is from the Italian or 
French. It's obviously a Latinate word, but yeah. yes, that idea of kind of a hero, often kind of a roguish hero having adventures. That's right. In fact, the way that some have characterized this novel is it was the first real shift from novel to entertainment with a capital right. E. This is very entertaining. Now, it's not to say that Don Quixote or right now I'm reading aloud because this is what a thing I do in my world. My wife cooks each night yeah. and I read to her. She loves to be read to. I love to read. I can't cook. It's been a <laughs> wonderful partnership for 30 no plus kidding. years and counting. But we're reading The Count of Monte Cristo right now, which is also just an amazingly mm. adventuresome thousand page plus epic tale. The Pickwick Papers, by the way, not inconsiderable in terms of its length. <laughs> yeah. It is another long... You show me the book on the video rollicking. screen, and I, it's like, it took two hands to lift it up. I see right. that. Not only that, but the text is very small, which oh, yeah. might have me wow. haltingly reading at points. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of words in here. But you know, to keep things going over 20 months for his native Englishman, he had to just keep writing and writing and writing, and it yeah. all became the Pickwick Papers. Well, look, Dave, let me introduce you. So David Gardner, chief rule breaker at The Motley Fool and co-founder, reading from Charles Dickens' first novel, The Pickwick Papers. Over to you, David. Well, thank you, Michael. And I'm just about to start, but I want to let everybody know that I'm going to be affecting accents because that's what I do when I read. I love to affect. Right now, (laughs) I mean, The Count of Monte Cristo, I get to be French. I get to be Italian. But of course, here, I'm trying to emulate, lightly so, the author's voice. And this is mainly narration. There's not a lot of dialogue, not a lot of characters. I think it'll become self-evident why I chose this particular passage, but I'll leave it to the listener to Mm. figure out. But Please allow me briefly to transform ever so slightly, not a huge change, into my English voice. It appears then that the Eatonswill people, like the people of many other small towns, considered themselves of the utmost and most mighty importance, and that every man in Eatonswill, conscious of the weight that attached to his example, felt himself bound to unite heart and soul with one of the two great parties that divided the town, the Blues and the Buffs. Now, the Blues lost no opportunity of opposing the Buffs, and the Buffs lost no opportunity of opposing the Blues. The consequence was that whenever the Buffs and Blues met together at public meeting, town hall, fair, or market, disputes and high words arose between them. With these dissensions, it is almost superfluous to say that everything in Eatonswill was made a party question. If the Buffs proposed to new skylight the marketplace, the Blues got up public meetings and denounced the proceeding. If the Blues proposed the erection of an additional pump in the high street, well, the Buffs rose as one man and stood against the enormity. There were blue shops and buff shops, blue inns and buff inns. There was a blue aisle and a buff aisle in the very church itself. Of course, it was essentially and indispensably necessary that each of these powerful parties should have its chosen organ and representative, and accordingly, there were two newspapers in the town, the Eatonswill Gazette and the Eatonswill Independent, the former advocating blue principles and the latter conducted on grounds decidedly buff. Fine newspapers they were, such leading articles and such spirited attacks. Our worthless contemporary, the Gazette, that disgraceful and dastardly journal, the Independent, that false and scurrilous print, the Independent, that vile and slanderous calumniator, the Gazette. These and other spirit-stirring denunciations were strewn plentifully 
over the columns of each in every number and excited feelings of the most intense delight and indignation in the bosoms of the townspeople. Mr. Pickwick, with his usual foresight and sagacity, had chosen a peculiarly desirable moment for his visit to the borough. Never was such a contest known. The Honorable Samuel Slumkey of Slumkey Hall was the blue candidate, and Horatio Fizkin, Esquire of Fizkin Lodge, near Edenswill, had been prevailed upon by his friends to stand forward on the buff interest. The Gazette warned the electors of Eatonswill that the eyes not only of England, but of the whole civilized world were upon them. And the Independent imperatively demanded to know whether the constituency of Eatonswill were the grand fellows they had always taken them for, or base and servile tools undeserving alike the name of Englishmen and the blessings of freedom. Never had such a commotion agitated the town before. Well, it was late in the evening when Mr. Pickwick and his companions, assisted by Sam, dismounted from the roof of the Eatonswill coach. Large blue silk flags were flying from the windows of the town arms inn, and bills were posted in every sash, intimating in gigantic letters that the Honorable Samuel Slumkey's committee sat there daily. A crowd of idlers were assembled in the road, looking at a horse man in the balcony who was apparently talking himself very red in the face in Mr. Slumkey's behalf. But the force and point of whose arguments were somewhat impaired by the perpetual beating of four large drums which Mr. Fizkin's committee had stationed at the street corner. There was a busy little man beside him, though, who took off his hat at intervals and motioned to the people to cheer, which they regularly did most enthusiastically, and as the red-faced gentleman went on talking till he was redder in the face than ever, it seemed to answer his purpose quite as well as if anybody had heard him. The Pickwickians had no sooner dismounted than they were surrounded by a branch mob of the honest and independent who forthwith set up three deafening cheers, which being responded to by the main body, for it's not at all necessary for a crowd to know what they are cheering about, swelled into a tremendous roar of triumph, which stopped even the red-faced man in the balcony. Hurrah! shouted the mob. In conclusion, one chair more, screamed the little fugleman in the balcony and out shouted the mob again as if lungs were cast iron with steel works. Slumkey forever, roared the honest and independent. Slumkey forever, echoed Mr. Pickwick, taking off his hat. No, Fizkin, roared the crowd. But certainly not, shouted Mr. Pickwick. Hurrah! And there was another roaring like that of a whole menagerie when the elephant has rung the bell for the cold meat. Who is Slumkey? whispered Mr. Tupman. Uh, I, I, I don't know, replied Mr. Pickwick in the same tone. Shh, don't ask any questions. It's always best on these occasions to do what the mob Brilliant. Brilliant performance, David. Thank you. Fizzkin versus Slumkey, Blues versus Bluffs. <laughs> Do what the mob does. There's so much good there. What's that French quote? You know, the more things change, the less things change. <laughs> La plus ça change or something like that. My undergraduate Perfect. <laughs> French coming back to me briefly, Michael. I got a two on the AP test here in America, which is not good out of five for my French. <laughs> oh, man. I would have dreamt about getting as high a score as two when it came to learning French. 
I suspect I know why you may have picked this particular couple of pages, but what is it about that that feels so apropos right now? Well, I think that we are constantly hearing about what a nation divided we are Mm. here in the United States of America. And I think that there is some truth to it, but I also think there's a lot of bluster. And I certainly wish that we could all come together as the people of Eatonsville. I won't say (laughs) what happens in the novel, but as you'd hope that the people of Eatonsville might, because whether you're a blue or a buff, and I actually just love the names of the parties because they're merely colors. So there's no baggage here. I'm an apolitical person. Of course, in the United States, we think about Republicans and Democrats and independents. Yeah. But I just love being able to say the blues and the buffs because it all kind of runs together. Part of the humor that Dickens introduces is it's not really clear what the blues or the buffs stand for at all, which is, I think, a real problem today in America. If I asked you, what are the core values of this or that party? I'm not sure the people within the party themselves would give the same answer, not reading off the same song sheet. So there's just a lot of confusion. And of course, growing up in Washington, D.C., as I have, and seeing sometimes the self-importance around these kinds of things, how can I not laugh? Nearly 200 years later, because again, Dickens wrote this in 1837. So there's something that great literature does for us, which it reminds us that these verities really are eternal verities. You can get too much in the weeds in your own time and think, wow, this is different from all other times. And it's probably not. Exactly. If you don't want Dickens, just go back 40 or 50 years and you've got Dr. Seuss talking about a very similar thing, which is like, (laughs) we're all the same, we're all different. How do you bring people together, David? I mean, it's interesting, you know, part of The Motley Fool is about provocation and challenging the status quo. You might say that's actually a disrupting force, but I do sense with you this kind of commitment to a greater humanity. Is there a path forward? I think that there is, and two thoughts come to mind, and they're each a rabbit hole we could go down, although we'll run out of time and it probably won't make sense. But the two different thoughts I have are the uniting power of core values. That's Mm -hmm. one of them. And then the second one comes from our mutual friend, Les McEwen, and his insights around what he calls an enterprise mentality. So both of those, for me, are powerful, interesting conversations. Could we touch briefly on each? Yeah, um, let's let's start with the core values because, uh, you know, I've been thinking about organizations for close to 30 years now, and there's almost always some kind of conversation around core values. And most of it is shallow because it's like, here's some words, here's some banal phrases that have been kind of watered down to be acceptable to all parties. Here's how we've laminated them. And lamination is death. And so this (laughs) language around core values is often actually a way of not owning and embedding and embodying certain behaviors that you want central to an organization. So what have you learned about making values alive and real and something that determines everyday behavior? Well, I certainly would want to guard against people mailing it in or laminating the core values. I love your phrase there. Because they really should be felt and they should run deep and they should really be true of us, that they are Mm. whatever the organization we're talking about, for-profit or not-for-profit, they should be the values that we cherish together. And, you know, sometimes trying to keep five different values in mind is hard even for me, and The Motley Fool has five core values. But if you want to keep it simple, we talked about purpose earlier, just the purpose 
right. of you or your company? Or how about this? The purpose of America. Yeah. That can be a uniting thing. So I think what's most important to me is not that people have memorized their core values or keep them eternally in place. We should refresh them. We should shake them up from time to time. It's the conversation that even gets you to enumerate right. and declare the core values. And, and that's what I think is missing from America. I've tried to ask friends at cocktail party stuff, what do you think are America's core values? And there doesn't have to be a right answer. I have my five that I think are America's core values, but I'd be just as interested in yours. And we won't have that conversation today. It is indeed the grasping after and the searching toward and also just the listening. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me to hear an old friend or a new friend say, I think one of America's core values is blank. Right. And I often, the next question is, how did you arrive at that interesting conclusion? And so you're listening to people, you're hearing them, and you're trying to align ultimately. So, well, I will just throw out what I think really briefly are America's five core values. Yes, please. And please disagree, or let's not even have the conversation, but I'm just trying to show the importance of yeah. aligning it. So for me, liberty, the land of the free, justice, from social justice or just having just laws that power our economy. Mm -hmm. Number three is enterprise. How could I not think about how business-driven the story of America is, especially what we represent the world? Resilience. I think that we have been through all kinds of experiences as a nation in our 300 or so years. And wow, are we resilient as a people, I think, whether it's just this era or every other for America. And then the final one, and this is sort of a surprise, this is the special sauce, it's kindness. I think that we are a very kind nation. We're among the most generous nations in the world for donations per capita. I think about uniquely American phenomena like Mr. Rogers mm. or Oprah, or you think about a really popular show that just kind of swept the Emmys a week ago, Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso. which basically yeah. takes American <laughs> optimism and kindness, puts yeah. it in, in an English setting, and people love Ted Lasso for that. So I think we're reminded that mm. kindness is in our hearts. And so un-American behavior for me would be the opposite of those five things I just gave you. And that's really important, I think, to state what you stand for and then to live it and to fight against the things that undermine it. Is there a danger at you know, both an enterprise level and at that kind of nation level that in claiming values, which always are in the light, you turn your back on the shadow and on the darkness and the tension that is there. How do you counteract a conversation that says, and I'm going to use the phrase thoughtfully, we're whitewashing this conversation by claiming that these are our virtues mm. and our values? Yeah, so I, I think that you always have to have integrated both sides of your brain and mm. both sides of any argument. So I'm the first to say that, you know, values that become overweening uh, lead to not two party systems, Michael, but sometimes one <laughs> right. party system. So as right. much as I don't like the blues and the buffs, they have it going much better. If I found myself living in a country that had one party, I'd be asking me myself, what happened? How right. did we get here? This is a huge mistake. So, so I'm the first to say that you, know, you have to keep things like core values in mm. context. I, I personally believe if you're looking at a, I don't know, a spectrum right now where one side is total faith and belief in values and, and overweeningly so, and the other is complete lack of understanding of what the values are, any discussion around it, I think we're much closer to the latter right now where we right. are in America. 
And yeah. so for that reason, I think it's important to have that core values talk. After all, core values power so many great organizations that I know of uh, yeah. and purpose statements do. And we're sort of lacking that at a national enterprise level. We've yeah. got the blues and the buffs shutting down government because they can't agree on budgets. And that's something I see when it happens every few years here in Washington, D.C. And the blues blame the buffs and the buffs blame the blues. And meanwhile, my friends are saying, I guess I won't be going to work on Monday. And so right. what's lacking, again, is that one click up enterprise level appreciation awareness mm. of the responsibility if you were working in government, which I'm not, but I feel it in my business, the responsibility to the enterprise, to the whole nation, not just your party or your one um, right. favorite issue. That connects us to, as you said, Les McEwen's idea around this kind of enterprise commitment, enterprise mindset. You know, there was a report that Shell put out in 2013, I think, and in the context of their scenario planning, which they're famous for, which is like, how do you look into the, the future? And they talked about three fundamental paradoxes. And one of the three paradoxes, and I can't quite remember the label it had, but it was effectively this. At a time when we need collective action more than ever, the rise to be individually focused is stronger than ever. How do you balance the tension between our individual quests for lives and our individual values at the same time with this sense of playing a bigger game to whatever that enterprise might be? So I think it's having an abundance mentality. I think mm. a lot of us have a trade-off mentality. They're very different. And I know you know these things at a deeper level than I do. You've actually studied them. But for me, I think that the abundance mentality, the both and, is the way through. So many people try to cast things as if you could only have one thing but not the other. Right. I'm always having my cake as much as I can and eating it too. <laughs> you know, what if I gave you an opportunity to buy one stock or the other, Michael? Yeah. I'd either give you the world's largest e-commerce company or yeah. you could have the world's largest web services cloud company. Right. Which one would you take? And the answer is is both yeah. because Amazon is both. Right. And the companies and the people and the leaders who have that abundance mentality recognize the importance of both the individual, as you just said, and the collective. Yeah. If you're only doing one, you're kind of missing. It's like in American football, if you only play defense really well or only play offense really well, yep. you won't win. Turns out you can be great at defense and at offense, and that's a both and mentality. So that's, for me, a creative a problem solving um, yeah. tactic that I lean on quite a lot. And that's what I think of first when you ask that. What it reminds me of, David, is a question that the writer and thinker Roger Martin presented, not to me, but to the world at one stage. Because, you know, the both end mentality I fully understand and love. It's an abundant way of seeing the world. But sometimes I'm not quite sure what to do with it in the moment. <laughs> like when I'm faced with a dilemma and I'm like, I just don't know which way to act. And the question Roger Martin would ask is, what needs to be true for this to be able to be both and rather than either or? And it takes you away from trying to figure out which is best. And it takes you into the future to say, well, what needs to be true for both of these things to be able to coexist? And that's what opens up possibilities for mindset and behavior that mm. otherwise get me a little stuck in the present moment. I like that a lot. And I guess I would just say back that for me, in the moment, right there on the tarmac, when you need to make a quick decision, 
and you don't think you can hit both. You can't yeah. do both. And I'll ask myself, when I'm 80 years old, looking back to today, trying to minimize the regret that I feel as an octogenarian, which should I do? And for me, that is a real guiding light, kind of a question that when you're asked to make an important decision and you really can't tell which direction to go, and it's not a both and, that's the way I would lean. But I'd still be stepping back and trying to figure out how to create, this is a phrase from conscious capitalism, a win, win, win. The only ethical position, one of the founders of conscious capitalism with Raj Sisodia, who you mentioned earlier, John Mackey, the only ethical framework that makes sense is when everybody wins, not win-lose or lose-win. The buffs and the blues, zero-sum, <laughs> lose-win. And that's still true in a lot of ways of American politics. And ironically, since politics is concerned with power, I feel as if the political world is losing a little bit of power every day because right. of its losing its relevance in the same way that the horse-faced, red-faced man with a horse voice is shouting himself <laughs> up on the balcony and is just sort right. of um, ir irrelevant. And that's one of the reasons, Michael, that I do love business, because I believe that business is creating a win, win, win every day. Mm. We're not just serving the blues or the buffs with our blue in or our buff in. We're trying to serve everybody. And to do that, it's hard. It is itself a creative exercise and problem solve. But again, the nature of business is you and I are transacting with each other. There's a buyer and yep. a seller and they agree and shake hands. They don't walk away and shout at each other and try to pull a power move or some kind of political tactic yeah. to get the better of the other. So I realize that not every business acts that way and there's some certainly bad forces in the private sector. But I personally, just taking a big picture look, I see the private sector growing in value every day. I see a lot of the public sector, at least in our country, losing a little bit of value every day. It's not really a conversation people have, but I see that as really relevant to observe and to think about today. You know, Apple has more money in its bank account than a fair number of sovereign nations today, yeah. as a quick example. I don't think that that's bad. I don't think that means break up Apple or they're doing anything bad. Actually, Apple has brought computers to octogenarians. They've made iPads, you know, tappable right. for anybody. They've simplified computers during the computer yeah. age. They deserve their success and they're trying to win for everybody. Maybe it's hard to compete against Apple, but if you think about the very nature of business, it's a win-win-win. David, this has been as good a conversation as I hoped it would be. I love that you bought fiction rather than nonfiction. The, the balance of people bring nonfiction to these conversations and that you bought Dickens Alive so brilliantly. As a final question, perhaps, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? It's a beautiful question. I guess my answer is that one other thing my wife, Margaret, who again is steeped in this far more than I, but she said something really lovely about Dickens. And she said, you know, Dickens in part, we won't say the first because I'm sure it goes back to the Greeks, but at least in sort of the more modern era, he was the first to really think about social justice mm. and weave it into our stories. And yeah. so certainly, obviously, for Great Britain over the course of the 19th century and for the rest of the world since, a lot of us associate some of his more serious fiction later on with his effort toward social justice. Now, that echoes with sort of where we are today, but it was never particularly strident, and he was never a blue. He was never a buff. He was a storyteller, and he realized the power of stories and the importance of them. So I want to credit Margaret for that quick thought. Again, my smarter wife, just like your smarter <laughs> wife, probably has something better to add to this conversation, but exactly. I wanted to mention that too, and it gets me back to, you can only have one, Michael. Which would you like? Would you like 
a brilliantly comic satirist as your novelist or one greatly concerned with social justice? And the answer yeah. is... Both. I'll take both of those, please. And Charles Dickens <laughs> was a rule breaker in a lot of ways. I've really been sitting with what we covered in this conversation. I mean, David's clearly thought about conscious capitalism a great deal, and he's one of the champions for it, and his enthusiasm and his learning is infectious, and I think that is a great cause to champion. What's caught my attention, though, is when he talked about values, you know, the five values for America. These are interesting. I wrestle with values, certainly when they're presented as a list. Here are the, you know, the five values, because a list isn't ever enough to deal with complexity. And the values are needed when we're dealing with complexity. So I'm always trying to answer two questions when I think about values. And, you know, this is for me personally, my, me and my life. It's for MBS.Works, the small company that this podcast is part of. It's for Box of Crayons as well, the learning and development company that I founded. What's the relationship between the values? Where's the tension? So, I mean, take two from David's list. Let's say liberty and resilience. How do they contradict one another? What are the circumstances where you have to choose one over the other? And how would you do that? How would you prioritize them? And then the other thing about values for me is, what's the shadow side of the value? Because often when we talk about the values, we only see the light, the very best of what it is at its very best. But what's, what's the dark side of liberty? Because there is a dark side. What's the dark side of resilience? And how is that part of how you think about choosing and championing this value for the way that you show up in the world? What's the price as well as the benefit for claiming and naming this value? I don't have the answers to this. I mean, that should be obvious enough. But I really like what David said. Go have a conversation with somebody about a value. Go get curious. Two other interviews that you might like if you like this one. The one with Ian Leslie called Conflict and Curiosity. I mean, <laughs> that kind of sells itself. I loved his book. The book we read with Ian was about the Beatles. But really, his genius in the two books Ian's written, one is about curiosity, one is about productive, useful, powerful conflict. And then the other person who you might like to talk to is Minda Hartz. She's written a book about a seat at the table and about women of color in particular. How do they claim that spot at the table. And that just feels important in the context of conscious capitalism and also in these deeper conversations about what are our values. For more about David, of course, Motley Fool, you'll find that easy enough if you Google it. He's got a great podcast. I was on it actually. So you might want to, if you'd like to hear the tables being turned, listen to David interviewing me on his Motley Fool podcast. Thank you for listening. It's very appreciated that you listen all the way to the end. Love it if you've given the podcast some love on your podcast app. If you've passed this episode on to a person, I mean, who is that person? That one person that could do with listening to this conversation. Maybe it's just somebody who loves Charles Dickens. Send that along to them. And if you want a bit more, check out the website, mbs.works. Uh, click on the podcast tab and you'll see an invitation to the Duke Humphreys Library. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>